You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something. This is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Bring together some of the most innovative and battle-tested players in the L.A. punk scene, and you've got the supergroup off. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Off performs live in the studio this week on Sound Opinions. And later in the show, Greg and I review the new albums from indie darling Cat Power and the Husker Du legend Bob Mould. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. If you see me walking down the street and I That is Isaac Hayes with his version of Walk On By, one of the great songs written by the team of Hell David and Burt Bacharach. Hell David died recently at the age of 91 of a stroke in Los Angeles. That great songwriting team, one of the great songwriting teams of all time in the vein of Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, they bridged the gap between the show tune era and the rock and roll era. They hooked up in the early 60s and wrote decades' worth of hits afterward. Backrack handled the music, David the lyrics. A very sophisticated sense of melody and nuance in the lyrics. They worked with all the great singers of that era, or most of them anyway. Dusty Springfield, Jackie DeShannon, Gene Pitney, Karen Carpenter, Tom Jones, Isaac Hayes, as we just mentioned. They were on Broadway with Promises, Promises. They had that Oscar-winning song, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but their greatest collaboration was with Dionne Warwick. They met Warwick as a journeyman singer. She was just 20 years old, singing on a lot of backing sessions at the time, singing demos for other artists. One of the songs that she demoed was a song called Make It Easy on Yourself that David and Backrack wrote. Jerry Butler then took that song and turned it into a hit. After a while, Dion started to feel a little used, like, wait a minute, what, what do I get out of this relationship? How about letting me sing some of these songs on recordings? She walks out of the studio and says, don't make me over, man. Take me for what I am. <laughs> and David looks at Backrack and says, well, you know, that's a song. Let's write that song. Yeah. Almost in spite of themselves, they wrote this feminist manifesto, Don't Make Me Over, became Dion Warwick's first big hit in early 63. And you can hear... Dion embracing that lyric, that song. I don't think she ever sang with such fierce emotion as she does two minutes into that song. And then again at the end where she sings those lines, it's almost a cry, a plea, a desperate attempt to be recognized for who she is. Don't make me over. From Dionne Warwick, 1963 on Sound Opinions. Don't make me over.
Don't Make Me Over, that's Dion Warwick singing the lyrics of Hal David, dead at the age of 91. That explosion was a bit of upside down by our guests this week, the punk rock supergroup Off. I have to say it with the exclamation point, Greg. Hmm. Off is the project of Keith Morris, Dimitri Coates, Stephen McDonald, and Mario Rubalcaba. If those names don't ring any bells, if you've never heard of Off, chances are you do know some of these guys' previous bands. Greg, these four gentlemen combined, I think, brought more history in American underground music to our studios than any band we've had on the show. Consider Keith Morris. He's the elder statesman of Off. He was the frontman and co-founder of Black Flag, which defined hardcore punk as a genre in the 70s. And then he went on to front the Circle Jerks, one of the most important hardcore punk bands in that L.A. scene. Dimitri Coates, who helped get Off off the ground, is the frontman of Burning Brides. We talked about Stephen McDonald just a couple of weeks ago. He and his brother founded the power pop band Red Cross. We gave that new album that they put out a double buy it. And then finally, you have drummer Mario Rubalcaba, who was in San Diego's incredible Rocket from the Crypt. We're going to get into all of that history in a minute, but I thought the place to start in this conversation was to ask about how Off came together in Los Angeles in 2009. I asked Keith how he and Dimitri got the idea for this group. It wasn't really an idea. We 
started working on a, another musical project with another band that I was in. Mm-hmm. And the older guys were, were older guys. Don't want to take orders from a younger guy. <laughs> you know, the younger guy comes along and he wants to kick butt, light a fire under every, everybody's tookus and heinies. We'd been trying to write an album for 15 years and it just wasn't going to happen because the energy was wrong. Circle jerks, you mean? I don't talk about the circle jerks. I talk about the other band. Okay. <laughs> this is my new priority because in the other band, everybody plays in other bands. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, all the other bands are more important than the band that we were playing in. Mm. Dimitri, how did you get involved recording Keith at that point? Did you, had you known each other from this? Yeah, yeah. Thing? I mean, we've been friends a long time. He was the DJ at my wedding. He was a big supporter of <laughs> Burning Brides, my other band. And... Uh, the bass player from the Circle Jerks, you know, I saw him at a restaurant called Millie's one day and he was just really upset and he said, we're either going to break up or maybe maybe we, we have a, a fighting chance if uh, we can make a record. And I said, well, maybe I could help you do that. I could talk to Keith, you know. You know, one of Keith's favorite records is uh, Give Him Enough Rope by The Clash. And I think one of the things he likes about it is that it was produced by a sort of an outsider, more of a rock producer. I went with that pitch. <laughs> uh-huh. They were intrigued. I mean, my whole my whole thing was like, hey, Keith, how did you guys do this back in the day? And he, he would say things like, well, from what I can remember, <laughs> um, uh-huh. you know, we'd have a buddy down at like a voiceover studio, not even a proper studio. We'd get a call like, hey, you know, somebody canceled. And there's like two hours where you can come and record your whole record. And I think that's like the first Circle Jerks record. I can see, can't you see? So I tried to put them in this situation, and nobody seemed to want to go back in time the way the two of us did. Eventually, it just turned into people stopped showing up, and you know, Keith put the guitar in my hands and said, "What would you do?" The rest is kind of. Well, All downhill from there. Yeah, Dimitri, <laughs> there's another part to the situation. One of the guys in the other band had grown used to this lifestyle of, well, somebody else writes the songs, and he just shows up and learns the song in 15 minutes, mm. and then they spend two months in the studio recording. You might make quality music, but there's a big, big, big ultra-mega-large portion of the vibe being removed when you have this long lazy layover well we don't need you to come into the studio today because we're going to spend all day trying to get the hi-hat sound (laughs) and that's not what this music is about this is rock and roll music you set up you put the mics in front of the equipment and you rock out yeah you don't think about it you don't over analyze it you just do it
I'm still tripping though. Before we get our first song, which I think is going to explain everything for people who haven't heard you yet, Sandy Perlman of Blue Oyster Cult fame produced "Give Him Enough Rope." It's an awful album compared to the first Clash album and London Calling. What did you like uh, about you're that? You're wrong. You're wrong. I love that. I mean, album. Machine Gun, right? Yeah. The no, first three songs are like I, boom, boom, boom. I saw the Clash on the "Give Him Enough Rope" tour. Okay. And they laid waste to anybody that got in front of them. Mm-hmm. They're a rock and roll band. Yeah. Why, why shouldn't they be produced by a rock and roll producer? They're angry Londoners. Fantastic. But Mick Jones was a huge fan of a rock and roll band called Mott the Hoople. I knew we'd get a good answer from that. Let's hear a song by Off. What are you going to play? Well, what we want to do is we want to get angry about a situation that's happening here in the United States and probably everywhere else in the world. We have a batch of uh, people that we've voted into office who are supposed to represent us who don't really represent us. Mm. The song is called Borrow and Bomb. Okay, <laughs> your, your wake-up call has arrived. Office here, borrow and bomb from the self-titled album out this year. Keith Morris, Dimitri Coates, Stephen McDonald, Mario Rubalcaba. I got to tell you, Keith, when you play that song, it reminds me of seeing you guys a year ago at the, uh, I think it was the Pitchfork Festival. Your introduction to the band was, uh, well, we looked around and it looks like we're going to bring a little different flavor to this whole <laughs> afternoon. Well, um, we got to see Super Chunk. They bring yeah. their flavor. Yeah. We got to see Guided by Voices, great rock yeah. and roll band. We saw Deer Hunter. They were fantastic. But then there were a lot of guys with beards sounding like bread circa 72. Well, <laughs> come the, on, you these, know it. These, these type of bands. And we're not, we're not bad-mouthing them or dissing them. Good luck to all bands. They have their <laughs> place in time. There's a, there's a good time to listen to that music when you're hanging out with your parents or, <laughs> you know, Sunday morning. I, I think in some ways what you're talking about in that song and the way you perform that song, there's a necessity for that. You were doing that in 1979 to an extent, and you're doing it now. It's, this is the sound that's always been in your head. And this well, there, is the there's you nothing want. wrong with any of the other forms of music. Like I said, they all have their place in time. I don't know if I speak for the dads in the room, but I'm bummed out. It's just like looking at this landscape that we're a part of. It's pretty horizontal. Mm-hmm. There's nobody like busting out a jackhammer or <laughs> adding any kind of vertical flavor to what's going on. Yeah. Steven, I want to bring you into the conversation. 
you were in a band called Red Cross, one yeah. of my favorite bands. Still in time. it. You started off as a real hardcore punk band. There was a lot of growth into psychedelic rock and, and pop and just wonderful stuff. Dimitri earlier said something about going back in time. And I know you guys don't live in the past, but what is there that's timeless about punk rock, the way you started playing it, the way Keith started playing, the way everybody started playing it, and that made you guys want to come and make music like that again with Off? You know, I mean, for me, my history with Keith is that the first time I ever played a show in front of, you know, an, an audience was opening for Black Flag. And that was my introduction to being a part of a of an outsider, weirdo bunch of musicians. I'm about to have a nervous breakdown. My head really hurts. If I don't find a way out of here, I'm gonna go to Tiffas. I'm crazy and I'm hurt. Head on my shoulders. It was just a very raw, pure primitive expression of you know Keith talks about anger and frustration and you know and I just felt like well Keith is still really pissed off and he wants to do it in the particular way that he knew how to do it and like that's what I grew up on I definitely cut my teeth in those rooms this is the late 70s right 78 79 that period of time yeah. to be in a punk band was not only cutting against the grain of what was going on in music was clearly cutting against the grain of what was going on in society. I mean, you, you could get beat up for being a punk. Oh, yeah. Uh, but we didn't look like punks. We just looked like a bunch of beach rats. Mm -hmm. We looked like the guys yeah, that hung under but, the But pier. you also weren't in junior high school, Keith. <laughs> you know, no, I was I mean, in junior high earlier. <laughs> I know, but at that point, after that summer of hanging out with Black Flag, even just like by boycotting the Hangton OP new school clothes that my mom got me and just opting for Levi's and t-shirts. It was like I had just stepped out of a spaceship. You think you're the king of the scene? Did you create it? I got news for you. We'll have more of our conversation with Off after a short break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later in the show, Jim and I will review new records by Cat Power and Bob Mould.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim Durigatis, and you're listening to our conversation with punk supergroup Off. Like most bands that attract that dreaded supergroup label, Off comes with a pedigree. We're talking about Keith Morris, Dimitri Coates, Steve McDonald, and Mario Rubalcaba, who since the 70s have helped define L.A. rock and punk with bands like Black Flag, Circle Jerks, Rocket from the Crypt, Burning Brides, and Red Cross. But they're not living in the past of those bands. Since Off came together in 2009, the bands cultivated an audience outside that traditional hardcore scene. They've played everything from the hipster-friendly Pitchfork Festival to opening for a mainstream band like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. When Tom came to put out their first recordings, first four EPs, and then the self-titled debut album, they went with a cutting-edge label, Vice Recordings. So I asked Keith how the band ended up signing with Vice. Well, the original idea was that uh, we were going to just take this band and move at our own pace and put out four songs here, four songs there, kind of like the black flag technique. Mm -hmm. You know, just play it as you go. And then uh, we were presented with a record contract and uh, we were getting ready to sign the contract and one of the guys in the band said well this is the first group of people at a record label that we've talked to why don't we talk to some other people and in that process talking to another another record company they got all excited and they said you want to get the party started Mm. start jumping through flaming hoops (laughs) (laughs) all right we've got off in the studio what are we going to hear next keith Uh, The next track we would like to perform for you is a song called Wrong. On Sound Opinions, we are here in the Jim and K. Maybe studio with Keith Morris, Dimitri Coates, Steve McDonald, and Mario Rubalcaba. I don't think we've been saying it right, Greg, because there's the exclamation point. Yeah. yeah. We're supposed to say it like, off! <laughs> off! <laughs> off! How long did it take to record the album? Three days. Two, two, two and a half. Uh, yeah. Two days recording, one day mixing. and Yeah. yeah. How did you call the 16 tracks on, on the album? There's room probably on here at the off song length for 50, 60 tracks if you wanted. From the get-go, you know, Keith was always just like, trim the fat. You know what I mean? Also, we, we drink a lot of coffee. Our attention span is, is very minimal. Mm. You know, just because the songs are short doesn't mean that they were any less difficult to write. I mean, you still have to come up with a a good riff and there's a verse and a chorus and sometimes even a bridge mm-hmm. harmony you know? vocals and, and i mean all of us are big beatles fans we're kind of uh classic rock heads when it comes down to it and uh if you were to look at all of our record collections they're, they're very similar you know we're into stuff like alice cooper and the kinks and credence and blue oyster cult and captain beyond 
And that's the stuff that he plays in his living room before I pick up the guitar and start trying to write something. We do occasionally listen to the damned and stiff little fingers. So you, you signed with this label, which is a pretty cool label, high profile, I would say. Keith, I know back in the day, Stephen, you can speak to this too. I mean, being a punk rock band, late 70s, early 80s, there was this very small community of people paying attention. It's got to be surreal to sort of have a, a band doing hard-edged music like this where people are actually are paying attention. You might not necessarily be fans of punk rock, but here you are playing to a field of 10,000 people at Pitchfork, let's say. No, nah, it's fun. I love it. I feel like I was built for a big stage. just took a while to get there yeah Mm -hmm. i think a lot of it has to do with luck there's the story of the two ain't our guys out on the golf course (laughs) and the the deal is whoever wins the match his band is the one that they're going to spend the million dollars on promoting yeah Mm. Keith, you're showing your age. Nobody <laughs> under 25 is going to understand that joke because nobody knows what an A&R guy is anymore because they don't exist anymore. Back in the old days, kids, there were major labels, and they hired guys who went around and took people like Steve McDonald to uh, $500 a night dinners and, and then, then screwed you, and, the band over. And then told you why they couldn't afford to promote your record. There you go. Well, I, I actually think Dimitri is probably the last person in this room to have an experience with sort of the major label system on that level, right, if I'm not mistaken. Because Burning Brides was a hot commodity there for about 10 years ago. I remember. Well, and that's deal, how right? I met Keith. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got signed to V2 Records, and he was uh, working at that label. I've done all that kind of stuff that we've been doing for the last uh, couple of weeks, you know, opening for bigger bands and playing on Conan a couple of times. And I don't know how it is anymore with the majors, but we sort of got in before the door closed in that <laughs> old world and, you know, signed the big record deal. And it kind of ruined the band in a way because everybody wants you to skip steps when that happens, when they start throwing money at you. And what's really refreshing about this process is that everything seems to be happening organically. You know, we're really building a loyal fan base. And according to Facebook, it, it worked because our, <laughs> our biggest audience is 18 to 24-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Mm. And we just heard that somebody bought one of our records at Hot Topic. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they tweeted earlier. Ouch. <laughs> that sounds like the subject for Damn, another Damn, everything that I'm opposed to. <laughs> wow. How about another tune? Okay. It's called King Kong Brigade. Ah! 
Wow. I love this stuff. King Kong Brigade from Off on Sound Opinions from the self-titled album, Off! Exclamation point. Hardcore. What we are hearing is hardcore music. Some people, a lot of listeners probably don't even know what that is. Okay. Or if they've heard about it. Now, yes. Keith would disagree. Dimitri. Keith would disagree with that statement. Okay. And another person <laughs> whose opinion I respect greatly would disagree with that, and that's Pete Stahl from Scream. Okay. He's come out on the road with us. Both of them say we're not, we're not a hardcore band. We're a punk rock band. Okay. Um, and we're not even a punk rock band. Rock and roll band. We are a rock and roll band. Just crank it up. But you heard that term hardcore thrown at you guys in the late 70s. And now, again, because you were associated with that scene. So talk about that, because it's a loaded term. And the reason I brought it up is it, it is a loaded term. How did you feel about it back in the day? Keith, Stephen, you can probably address this question. Well, I don't think it existed when I first met Keith. I think it was Keith's old band that after they really kind of got rolling, that's when that term started being used. But like when I was in that rehearsal room, you know, watching them for the first time. Black Flag. Yeah, Black Flag. Not Keith's other band. <laughs> Circle the, on, Yeah, the unnamed band. But both got that thrown at them hardcore. Yeah, but I mean, I think Black Flag, they're probably the most responsible for that, that genre coalescing into something. When they first started, they were a punk band. That's what I thought of, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, now, there are other bands to be placed on this list, too, like Minor Threat, Bad sure. Runes, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vancouver's DOA. Let's put a positive spin on it. I mean, I'm, I'm against labeling music to begin with. Yeah. But when I was a misshapen youth of 16 or 15 going across the river from New Jersey to hardcore matinees at CBGB, sure. there were some bonehead bands there. But it meant... Bands that weren't going to go the route of the talking heads and television as great as those bands were and yeah. sign the sire and polish things up. It meant something, especially when Reagan started to come in. Uh-huh. It meant this is music in opposition. Opposition to the way major labels sound, opposition to what's on the radio, opposition politically, but also permission. You're gay. You're weird. You can be a front man. You can be a star. But, but also, like, you, you're talking about it from the perspective of that it was this really open-minded everyone's welcome gaba gaba hey experience but like what eventually turned me off at least on the west coast when it really became like this is a scene this is hardcore i found it to be extremely regimented Mm -hmm. and there were like intense rules that you had to like abide by or you were rejected which was against the idea of how i why i got into punk music in the first place you know And, and there was a lot of violence attached to it too which to me seemed like teenagers buying into like the media idea of what the punk movement was supposed to be about and it wasn't i i found when i first went to a show i remember my brother said on saturday night there's going to be an angel concert at long beach arena There's going to be a damn show at the Starwood. Which one you want to go to? And I yeah. was like, the, the damn, that's punk rock. Well, I'm born, said I'm born, yeah, I'm born, I'm born to kill. Said I'm born, yeah, I'm born, 
I made us go to Angel. You know, because I was, because I had read and heard, well, I had heard that if you went to a punk rock show, they're going to wrestle you to the ground and cut your hair. But when we eventually did go to a punk rock show, which was, you know, only a few months later, there were a bunch of like weirdo art students and stuff. They were like, wow, you kids made it out here. That's cool. But then later on, you know, it just, to me, it's suddenly when like the jocks at high school were getting into it, the kids that I, I didn't like and why I got into punk rock. To me, that's the image of like hardcore and, you know, but whatever. Once again, like I don't, the label thing, like whatever, rock band. The first Black Flag EP to me sounds like a party record. I mean, it's got like a swing to it. You can dance to it. Black Flag to me doesn't really start to sound like the way we think of hardcore until... Damaged or something like mm-hmm. that, you know. We lean more towards the party, the dark party. I, I don't want to. I don't want to get away from the hardcore conversation. I, uh, let's forget about what it came to mean. Sure. It got corrupted. Yeah. In general, this rock and roll that we all love used to mean something. If you defined yourself as a rock fan, that was how you defined your this. You know, that's who I am, right? Yeah. As old guys, can you guys comment at all? Does the music mean <laughs> as much to those eighteen to twenty-four year olds who are liking you on Facebook? Are they still out there? defining themselves by the fact that they listen to Off and I mean, 50 other bands that are happy I, I to I get name. the sense that they do. You know, I liked the way you introduced us as saying that we had all this history, rich and underground rock. Like, the mainstream, it seems like it matters less and less and less now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that title, that's something to be. The top of the underground, you know? Yeah. And before, we were always, like, sort of encouraged to think that you needed to be mainstream at some point or you were wasting your life or something. Well, that brings up a good point because I'm wondering, was it because you felt it was impossible to even think in those terms? Like we will never be mainstream or was it in the back of your head? Like I'd love it if this music was incredibly popular and that we could play an arena or something like that. That's, that's kind of a fantasy really for me being at the age that I'm at and being surrounded by these great musicians I'm just going with it. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm gonna go with this wherever it, wherever we can go, wherever it takes us. Wait a minute though. Yeah. If an energy drink came to you fellas <laughs> and said, you know, we want to buy Toxic Box <laughs> as our new theme song for sugary energy drink. If the drink allows you extra sexual performance, uh, that, we might. <laughs> We're all over that one. They're working on that one right now. Uh, well, but the thing that you know, as a fan. You obviously prefer to see a, a great band in a club. That There's nothing better than that experience. But as a band, the one thing I keep hearing from the bands who have made it to that level, you know, I like playing in arenas. I like, I, it's easier. You know, it's hard work being a club band and going from town to town in the van, you know, and, and playing 200 shows a year to j- just to make ends meet. I like all of it. Mm-hmm. I'd rather be in a club. I'd rather be in a hot, sweaty club. 
because that climate is good for the throat and the voice, even though my <laughs> voice sounds like I've been gargling sandpaper and honey and I got the garbage can going on. That's okay. But I would rather play the club because you can look down and you can see the people's faces. You can see the reactions on their faces. You can look all the way to the back room and you can sometimes see the people at the very back room. Well, also all these shows these days, they have like these barriers, you know? Yeah. There's like a, so the photographers can come and take their shots. <laughs> it's in the not first about three the songs. photographers. Yeah. The best shows that we have are like where I have to play most of my show backed up against my amp because the stage is overtaken <laughs> by kids. You're listening to Sound Opinions. We are here with Off. Another song, guys? You, you, you sure you want to hear another song? Elimination. Whiting out a constitution. Rewrite the rules to fit themselves. Elimination. Built us up on a false foundation. The decline of Western civilization. Those colors on your sleeves. Take a bath, soak and breathe. Sold our dreams and our souls. Dug a dirty ditch next to a golden trench. There's a big thing up for every son of a bitch. Elimination! Elimination by off. Great stuff. We want to thank Off, Keith, Dimitri, Stephen, Mario. Thanks for coming in, guys. Thank you for having us. Thank Thanks you. For us. This was awesome. That was a blast. In my you can see video of Off live in the studio at soundopinions.org. And don't forget to give us your thoughts. Do labels like punk rock and hardcore mean anything to you? Leave us your sound opinion at 888-859-1800. Up next, Greg and I review new releases from Cat Power and Bob Mould. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim Nirigatis, and that is a song called Cherokee from the latest Cat Power album called Sun. Sean Marshall, a.k.a. Cat Power, yes, it is pronounced Sean, even though it's spelled C-H-A-N, born in Atlanta, moved to New York in 92. There she was seen by Steve Shelley of Sonic Youth at a Liz Fair show. I mean, how hipster is that? You're opening for Liz Fair in New York, and yeah. Steve Shelley's in the audience. You end up recording a couple of albums for him if you're Cat Power, and that puts Cat Power on the independent music scene map in the mid-'90s. By 96, for her third album, she's signed with one of the best labels in the land, Matador, getting huge respect both from the independent scene and the mainstream. By 2006, she's recording with one of the great rhythm sections in the world, that classic high records rhythm section that recorded all those great soul records with Al Green, people like Teeny and Leroy Hodges playing on her record. But after releasing that album, she suffered a nervous breakdown, had some real issues with alcohol addiction that she'd basically been battling for the last couple of decades, checked herself into rehab, got cleaned up, fell into a high-profile relationship with the Hollywood actor Giovanni Ribisi, and, and that put her at a whole new level of celebrity. Now, Sean Marshall is not a woman who enjoys being in the spotlight, so I imagine that wasn't particularly comfortable for her. But meanwhile, she's writing songs while this relationship is progressing. That relationship ended earlier this year, and a few months later, we now have this album, Sun. Here's a track from it, Cat Power's Ruin on Sound Opinions. I've seen gypsies and made it all the way and kept going, kept rolling with nowhere to go, nowhere to go. As far as I've seen from the bush in the wilderness to every known city, I've been to Saudi Arabia, Dhaka, Calcutta, Suato, Mozambique, Istanbul, was Ruin from the new ninth album by Cat Power, Sun. Greg must be pointed out that that is an apt title for this disc, somewhat ironic given that the previous eight albums that Sean Marshall has given us have been anything but sunny. She likes to revel in the dark. You did not mention that one of the most infamous things about Cat Power is her penchant for curling up into a fetal ball on stage in the middle of a performance and no longer being able to continue as her devoted followers shout, we love you. That whole element of misery and woe combined with the slow, dirgy tunes on guitar and piano of her first eight albums really made it difficult for me to like Cat Power. And then the whole live spectacle, I have never been a fan. I've never been a believer. This album, I dislike less than all of the others. 
others. Why? Because it's a little sunny. I mean, she is working with people who produced the Phoenix and Beastie Boys albums. She has traded guitar and piano for synthesizers, and she is kind of in self help mode after facing bankruptcy and having the the difficult end of this relationship with Rabisi, as you mentioned. She's kind of telling herself it's okay to scream when they won't let you speak. She's reminding herself some people haven't got blank to eat. Uh, I guess all things considered, I shouldn't be so miserable. Mm. It's a different kind of attitude for Marshall and combined with the kind of general sunniness and, and it's all relative of these melodies, it's a lot easier to listen to. Although it's still not a fun record, and I still don't love her voice, and a little of her goes a long way. So on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, this is for the first time for me a burn it for Cat Power. Well, I'm even higher on it than you are, Jim, and I had the same reservations about Cat Power that you did. Maybe not quite as extreme, but I, I did have some difficulty with the fact that she would sort of curl up in this dark corner, as you said, and sort of mumble things to herself. Very opaque albums, very difficult to love unless you were a huge fan of Cat Power. But not as a huge Cat Power fan, I'm coming to this album and, and loving it, actually. I think her voice, first of all, is a wonderful dusky thing. I think it's one of the strongest parts of her game. And the fact that she's combining it with more danceable rhythms and a more upbeat view of life, fighting through the struggle and coming out at the other end just to a little bit of light, the sun, if you will, is a good thing for her. I love the album for what it's saying, but I also love how it's saying it, the fact that she is bringing that bounce to her music that's never been there before. I would say for me it's an enthusiastic buy it all the way. was a little bit of Silver Age, the title track from the new album by Bob Mould on Merge Records. Greg, hard to believe, but this is the 10th solo album by Bob Mould, and that isn't counting his incredible body of work in the 80s with Husker Du or his 90s band Sugar. You know, Bob Mould's a legend. He is to our generation that came up in the indie rock 80s what Lou Reed was to the punk rockers. He is a grumpy old uncle figure. You know, you got to love Bob Mould, even if he can sometimes be a little hard to take. Husker Du was one of those bands that made the alternative era possible, that mixture of punk rock ferocity and melody. Having missed the alternative gravy train, he put together Sugar, put out two albums with them in the 90s. Before that, he'd started a solo career, which was very fruitful art rock, and which continued after Sugar ended. At one point, Bob said, I ain't going to play guitar no more. Rock and roll is done. He put out an album called The Last Dog and Pony Show, and he started messing around with synthesizers. Uh, We talked about all of this and more in 2011 when Bob came on the show to talk about a fine autobiography written with Michael Azerod, See a Little Light. Now comes this album. Bob has said that after the task of spending three years looking at his life, writing that autobiography, he was inspired by two things to just rock out. Number one, realizing it was 20 years on since the debut by Sugar, Copper Blue, and number two, a stint spent opening for the Foo Fighters. Bob is claiming this record is just big, dumb rock fun. 
Is that true? Mm. We'll talk about that in a minute. Let's play a track. This is a song called Star Machine by Uncle Grumpy, Bob Mould, on Sound Opinions. Bob Mould with Star Machine from his new album, Silver Age. (laughs) Uncle Grumpy, as you say. You know, we love the guy for what he's given us musically over the last 30 years. I mean, between Husker Du and Sugar, those are albums that changed lives. I know know generations that have been influenced by those particular bands. And I think you're absolutely right. I think he is trying to remind people just a little bit. You know, all this stuff that you're listening to, whether it's No Age or Foo Fighters— you know, this stuff has a source, and it, it was with my bands in particular. He's getting back to that sound with a tight rhythm section here. I have a rule of thumb. I think if John Worcester plays drums on your record, it's going to be a good it's record. It's probably going to be a pretty good record. Yeah. Jason Narducci on bass sounds like it was pretty much recorded live in a room. It sounded like they had a place to get to. They needed to knock this album out in an afternoon. I think some of Mould's recent records could be accused of being a little too fussy a little too meticulous, a little too detailed. He's a craftsman-like songwriter. He's very good at what he does. But I love the fact that he's just letting it fly here. Those big melodies swelling out of those sheets of sound guitar and that driving rhythm section behind. In its own way, no, it's not a particularly ambitious record, but it's very, very good for what it does, that mating of noise and melody. No one's ever done it better than Bob Mould. He's doing it again here. It's a buy-it record for me. Yeah, I think it's a masterpiece, Greg. Uh, Definitely a buy-it record for me as well. You know, Bob, with all of this talk before the release saying this is just a rock record, he's actually trying to throw us off the trail. Because the things that were great about his autobiography, See a Little Light, was this deep, introspective look at his own failings and the ugliness of the world, lightened by the hope of the possibility of love, And it must be said, a sardonic sense of humor. He's grumpy, but he can be pretty funny. All of that is here. And in particular, that song we played, Star Machine, that is one of the most vicious eviscerations of the (laughs) corporate rock world that I've ever heard. And that's really saying something, right? On a show that had off on it, I mean, that is 
Bob railing at the machine. That kind of lyrical intensity flows throughout this album, and I must say it is paired with an emphasis on melody, the likes of which, I'll tell you, some of these melodies are as good as Grant Hart's. Mm. I'm going to continue to pine for, for the sweet, sour mixture of Bob Mould and Grant Hart in Husker Du, but in the meantime, this is a brilliant album that Bob's given us, so a double buy it from us. What do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we are going to look at some records that you need to hear about that are underneath the mainstream radar. Buried treasures. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. Our assistant producers are Annie Minoff and Michael DeBonis. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia, he is still hiding under his desk since the day that Off was in our studio. <laughs> Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, Jim and Craig. This is Julia. I'm calling from Philadelphia. And I'm calling about the 1977 podcast. I graduated from high school in 1977, and I was raised in Philadelphia, so I had many opportunities to go and see the Ramones then. And there was hardly anyone ever at those shows. It was sort of like the same 50 kids over and over again, which probably really sucked for them, but it was great for us. I don't know if you ever play the time machine game, like if you had a time machine, where would you go? But if it were me and I had a time machine, I would set the dial back to 1977 and go to see the Ramones. Hi, my name is Rebecca, and I live in Fort Collins, Colorado. I just listened to your year that punk broke, and I remember the first time I heard that advert song. I have not heard that song in... 25 years and recognized it instantly. my brother's stereo because it was digital and I would try and tune in WNUR and I would listen through static and just record endless hours and that was one of my favorite songs that they ever played. I never knew who they were and the name of the song or any history about them until listening to the show. Great. I'm so glad you picked that song. It's like a long lost mystery solved. Thanks guys. Hi, my name is Guy Ben Moshe from Buda, Texas. I want to say about the show you had on different days of the week, your favorite songs of days of the week. I love the show. 
Well, one song for Sunday stands out in my mind, and it wasn't your favorite pick, but it's my all-time favorite. Sunday will never be the same. Spanking our gang. Sunday song ever. You love your show. Hey guys, this is Mike Bodell from Franklin, Tennessee. Really enjoyed your show about the days of the week. It's always been kind of a little pet project of mine to try to collect songs, especially the ones that uh, mention every day of the week. And by far, my favorite has been Dave Edmonds' duet with Nick Lowe of Here Comes the Weekend. So, uh, again, thanks for the good work, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.